welcome to, I was going to say the, the old name again, Dark Habits and Almodovar Podcast. And this is our fourth season on Almodovar. This is not the uh, Spike Lee season or the Kershaw season or the French New Wave season. It's the Pedro Almodovar season. And um, did, did you say Hedro <laughs> I thought I said Pedro. Okay. I don't think he's Hedro. <laughs> No. Whoa, dark universe. Darkest timeline on Motivar. Hedro on Motivar. And I saw all his movies are uh, Robert Rodriguez movies. Yeah. <laughs> Just makes movies about fathers instead of mothers. <laughs> uh, yeah, but uh, in, in case anyone's wondering, we will not cover Robert Rodriguez movies. Uh, neither me or Joel care for his movies in general. Don't, don't tell everybody. I, you know, I want... I can pretend just as well as the other peers. Okay. Is it because he's Mexican and you have to... <laughs> and he's like the only prominent... Well, actually, there's Del Toro. Never mind. You can you can trash Rodriguez. If either one of them shows up in the family reunion, it's going to be awkward anyways. Because I haven't watched all of Del Toro's movies. And, uh, I'm not going to watch the other ones. Uh, yeah, that's... He has one of Ben Affleck that's apparently okay. But that's all I've heard. Anyway, yeah, so this is one of the... Is that Polu? No, it's a different cat that broke into my house. Okay, well, tell Polu I miss her. Um, anyway, yeah, so this episode is on uh, Classic Hollywood, one of the tenet things that I kind of realized with Omodovar. And this was on a list of movies Omodovar has said he liked at some point in the past. And so I figured, perfect chance to rewatch Rio Bravo, uh, a movie that I'm a big fan of. I don't like the politics of it, but that doesn't matter. It's just a cool-ass movie. I think it does matter, sort of. I don't know. We'll get into it. So we have a new uh, first-time uh, guest, Mike White, from the prestigious uh, Projection Booth podcast. Howdy, folks. Thanks so much for having me. No, you're very welcome. Uh, you're gonna class up the joint because you have a like a fancy podcast where you talk to people like Will Dafoe sometimes. Either, either class it up or stink it up. I'm not sure which one yet. I'm about to find out. And uh, <laughs> I was gonna say for the first time this season, but I. Uh, but I realize he's been on two episodes already. John Arminio. <laughs> oh, I'm that forgettable. Hi, <laughs> I'm John Arminio. Now, I talked to you so much. I'm like, was he on the <laughs> podcast or was this conversation we were having? <laughs> and it, it's always a pleasure, Spencer. So I'm, I'm glad to be back. Yeah, always welcome. Uh, you're our, you. our Western expert, seemingly, and our Catholic expert. And I think you got the Western part of this, uh, of this one. I, I hope so. I'm I'm honored to be both designations. Yeah, uh, J Dog. Uh, well, but, like, get into it. Have you had you heard of Rio Bravo before? Yeah, I've heard of Rio Bravo. Come on. I mean, okay. like the you know the few film classes I took, uh, we watched High Noon in one of them, and I remember teacher saying that. That uh, John Wayne supposedly said, you know, this is the most un-American movie I've ever seen. And that's, they made real, can you get out of here? Sorry. (coughs) She doesn't like it when I talk to people who are not in the room. 
<laughs> Anyways, yeah, so they had to, him and Howard Hawks get to get together, jerk each other off, and, and make Rio Bravo. Because, uh, you know. They had, they had Lee Brackett write the script, though. Uh, who's that? Uh, she uh, was a screenwriter. Yeah, she, wrote, it, she has credit on Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. She was also a science fiction writer, and I can't remember who her husband was, but he was also a writer, if memory serves. Um, Sheriff Brackett and Halloween is named after her. And then I want to say that Hawks hired her by mistake, because he didn't <laughs> know that Lee was a, could be a female name. Oh. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I was going right. to say, that, that doesn't stop them from jerking each other off, you know, it just right. makes it really yeah. awkward for her. But I think she had worked with him before, all the way back to the Big Sleep. Oh, yeah, they they, they really got along very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, anyway, Joel, uh, I uh, did you like this movie? Yeah, I thought it was a very entertaining popcorn western. Did you agree with the politics of the movie? I mean, what politics? It felt empty of. Nuance it's, that way. I don't know what you're talking about. It's, it's not the lefty version. He's not asking for help because he's being a man. Yeah, I mean, like, the this this is what it comes down to. Like, I did, you know, I'm big on interpretations of art mm-hmm. and uh, understanding your own connection feelings of that. I'm not somebody to ever tell somebody that they're, what they see as art is not art. And uh, I hope nobody else would say that to me. And, but, like, on like the strictest terms of things, this is Rio Bravo was a Marvel movie to you know one of some indie thing that mm-hmm. was seen at Con and then didn't get released for another twelve years or something like that. <clears throat> um, and like that's I'm saying that like I like Marvel movies. I go see Marvel movies. Do I think Marvel movies are like the peak of cinema? Hell no, absolutely not. That they got some movies that I really enjoy, and I enjoyed this one a lot. Okay, but I I do. If we're just going to get into the politics a little bit, you know, I'm slightly left of John Wayne, uh, <laughs> but I I understand their perspective. Like I, I think it's absurd to call High Noon the most un-American movie ever made, but I understand their perspective. Like if a cop came to your door and was like, "There's bad guys coming. Can you help me, please?" You'd be like, "No, that's that's your fucking job, my guy." Uh, um. So to make a movie where you're, you know, asking John Wayne to be peak John Wayne, you know, I I can under, certainly understand the appeal of that. And, like, this is my favorite John Wayne. Like, he's mm-hmm. absolutely adorable in this movie. He's a, he's a big teddy bear, especially with Angie, Angie Dickinson. And so him going from the, like, the psychotic he plays in Red River or, or in The Searchers, I think it, it shows his range and appeal as an actor. Which uh, often goes un- uh, undersold, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. And yeah, as far as the politics go, I'm really okay with all this. I know the whole thing of the lawman shouldn't ask for help. And in this one, the people that offer to help um, could get killed or do get killed. So I'm like, all right, yeah, that kind of makes sense. I mean, he's in a bad situation with uh, having the, 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 all the people turning against him, but he's got a pretty good support group in the town. And mm-hmm. I'm glad that he doesn't expect them to all pick up guns and help him out that way. They help him out in different ways. Oh, 
people are yeah. like practically throwing themselves at him. Like, oh yeah. Oh man, did you did you see some bad guys? I can help. I can help. I could I could shine your shoes. I could you know you need a hold. Yeah, I'm digging a hole. I'm digging a hole. Do you need this hole? Sorry, Doug. No, that's 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 more than just being like, well, sheriff. I don't think I can uh, help you out this time. Or like, well, sheriff, you did save my life that one time. Right. Yeah. I mean, the person that comes to his health the most, I feel, is Colorado. And he's kind of hanging out at the outside at first until his boss gets killed. And then he has a little bit of skin in the game. And he comes in and he's a great, great shot and a yeah. great ally. And, and a darn good singer, too. That's true. And, and I think one of the things that makes the Colorado character work is that so often the skilled youth character in any of these kind of movies or even in like more modern movies is very brash and mm-hmm. just immediately shuts down the older veteran characters to mm-hmm. sort of put themselves over. But because Colorado is so reserved and doesn't need to prove himself – He's not annoying, and you and you like him on screen, and you see him as an asset to both the film and to this cadre of good guys. And I think that's a testament to Hawks' ability to sort of like balance the tone of all these characters. Yeah, and he could be a real jerk and come in and say, "Why do you have this drunk working for you? Just hire me and get rid of the dude, and yeah. you've got yourself." You know, two two gunmen for the price of one. I mean, his boss basically does that for him. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but he doesn't, you know, it doesn't feel like Colorado doesn't like Dude. If oh, anything, no, no. he's kind of pulling for him. You know, he yeah. and Stumpy are really pulling for Dude, as is John T. Chance. Well, he immediately trusts Mr. Chance there. Sheriff Chance, my, my apologies. And I, I assume because he trusts him, he trusts his judgment on that. You know, I mean, he's got he's got the drunk guy. He's got the, the guy with the limp. Like, well, he, he doesn't seem like he's stupid. He must know what he's doing. Time to hire this uh, kid fresh out of, oh, wait, high school didn't exist. Damn it. <laughs> he's just fresh, okay? Yes, the Zach Afron looking kid. Uh, the, what? I, I find Ricky Nelson more attractive than Zac Efron. Yeah, Ricky, Ricky Nelson uh, looks like Zac Efron. I don't at, think so. At, at first glance, before you like pay attention. I didn't realize that Zac Efron looked like a murderer until he played, you know, <laughs> what's, his, what's his face? And then I was like, oh, that's what it is. Okay. Yeah. He's hilarious in, um, uh, what's that, what's that movie? Baywatch. The, no, the, uh, Neighbors. <laughs> Harmony Curran movie, uh, where he's like a, a preacher's kid with the trash humpers. Um, no, the one <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Gummo, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, Gummo. It's yeah, it's the one with Matthew McConaughey, McConaughey, Beach Bum, Beach Bum. Uh, yeah, there you Beach go. Bum. He has like a a ten minute segment that where he is amazing. Yeah. No, I don't think he's a bad actor, and I'm not saying no. he's not no. not handsome. I just don't think yeah. that Ricky. And him look alike. Yeah, I thought again at first glance, it's like, oh, this young pretty boy. That's like, oh, never mind. He has a personality. Yeah, uh, I kind of uh, grew up with Ricky Nelson, so I I can't see him as anybody else right now. Maybe at first, like you said, at first glance, but it's yeah. like he'll always be. Um, was that father's know, knows best? Uh, Ozzie and Harriet. Ozzie and Harriet. Thank you. 
He yeah. looks uh, like uh, he was just off the set of like one of those beach bingo type movies. Oh, totally. He probably was in one of them. There's so many. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, one thing that surprised me this watch that I kind of totally forgot was he had actual uh, Mexican actors in it. Yeah, that was crazy. Astounding. Mm-hmm. Asian actor too. Yeah. Yeah. And, you nice. know, it's it it the depiction of Mexicans in this movie <laughs> is, is problematic, but I I find it interesting that the the two non-white characters with speaking roles are business owners that live within the town. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the time when you had like 1950s versions of Hollywood liberal movies where you have like your main character be nice to to a minority character, which happened a lot, especially in Westerns, they're like they're, the, the non-white character is like there for a scene for the lead to like be nice to them and then you never see them again or they're they're shown living in another part of town um so it's like don't worry we're still segregated <laughs> um but in here they're like they're like prominent citizens and within the town and I'm I'm certainly not accusing Howard Hawks or John Wayne of any sort of progressive agenda um but it helped soften the blow of some of that uh, cringy comedy mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, the the main one, Pedro Gonzalez Gonzalez, he is Clifton Collins Jr.'s grandfather. Oh, nice. Yeah, I remember I saw some interview years ago with Clifton Collins Jr. where he said that he wanted to like be at the Oscars or nominate not be nominated for an Oscar while his grandfather was still alive. And <coughs> sorry, didn't mean to I lie. think, and I think he did like go to Oscars like when his grandfather was still alive. Something like that happened. Do you think that uh, his grandfather would have liked uh, Boondock Saints too? I'll say to say. Who knows? Does anyone like that movie? Oh, I'm think sure lots Troy, of bros love that movie. Troy Duffy does. <laughs> yeah, well, Troy Duffy loves everything that Troy Duffy does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, man, character actors got to work too. Oh, oh no, yeah, like, that's the thing. Like, yeah, him as a character actor, like I, I am always like super happy. To see him. Yeah, he's, yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. He's one of my favorite parts of Pacific Rim. That's what I was going to say, speaking of Del Toro. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't he a Del Toro guy at this point? Yeah, yeah, he is. He was in uh, Nightmare Alley. That's nice. right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, oh, what? But yeah, I thought it was great. His, uh, his role in there. He, of course, he's very comic relief but some of those scenes i think are great him and uh sheriff chance with the underwear i <laughs> still find that scene funny even though i've seen this movie yeah. probably 10 times i, I well, just i like the comic rhythm that they have be, because gonzalez is so fast mm-hmm. and john wayne is john wayne the fact that john wayne interrupts gonzalez like the slow laconic john wayne <laughs> Interrupting the rhythm of Gonzalez, I think, is just fun to watch. Hmm. And they didn't uh, to to skip directly to the ending. Like uh, at the end, he his character shows up and he offers to help, and John's like, "Nah, you you good out of here or whatever." But he stays, and he, uh-huh. he you can see him shooting. It's like, wow, I really did not expect that. Yeah, his wife could have had a little bit of a bigger role, but. I thought she was fine and wasn't 
to me, I wasn't offended by her wall. Yeah. No, there's, only, only, there's only room for one Hoxine woman. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's Spencer, you and I mm-hmm. thinking the same thing. Mm-hmm. And Andrew Dickinson got to be a Hoxine woman. I don't. So, uh, and. All right. So, Joel, uh, since you're new to this, uh, what is the plot of High Noon? I mean, what was the plot of um, Frio Bravo? Well, you see, there's a prisoner that's uh, going to be picked up by some marshals or something. Eventually, there's supposed to be marshals showing up. And in the meantime, the sheriff has to keep this guy locked up and make sure that nobody gets in to break out. And he knows that the prisoner he has has a brother with a lot of money, a lot of influence, and probably going to take any chance he can get to break his brother out of. And so they, he has two two deputies. I, I mean, I think that the Walter Brennan's character is also a deputy in that case. Or is he just the jailer? Yeah, he's a deputy. He like, seems like a deputy. Yeah, so he's got two deputies. One of them called them, they call him a cripple. He's just got a limp and he's an old man. He's doing this for us. <laughs> <laughs> Pardon me. That just made me choke. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah, you, you, you say one more thing about my leg and I'm gonna shoot you with my double barrel shotgun. Boom, baby. No, no. Um, I can't believe Walter Brennan it was a three-time Academy Award winner. <laughs> winner? Yes. Yeah. Best supporting oh. actor each time. Oh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, uh, and the other one is Dean Martin, who naturally was drunk. Yeah. Oh, and the character was also a drunk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My, my memory, like for me, Dean Martin's such a forgettable face. He's like vague fifties guy. Then, yeah. like when we did the, the other show with Melanie and we talked about the Dean Martin movie, uh, I was like, I'd never seen a Dean Martin movie before. And then halfway through, I was like, Wait, he's in Rio Bravo. I thought that was Robert Mitchum. <laughs> Because my, my brain, like, he's in uh, El Dorado, which is the <laughs> quasi remake of this movie. <laughs> uh, Mitchum, yeah, yes, yeah. oh, like for some reason, like this, like the crooner guys of that time period for my brain is kind of like this decides it's not worthy of remembering any of this. So Dean Martin just kind of goes in one ear and out the other, and I kind of forget his voice and what he looks like. Wow. He was like one of the hottest entertainers of the 20th century with him yeah. and Jerry Lewis. Yeah, they would sell out night any nightclub they, they went to. It was like one of the most profitable acts in America, that that tour that they did. That's why they, they got that whole money from home script. You know, people saw him on stage and they're like, these guys are perfect for this weird horse racing movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I was but, in Maryland. Like, Dean Martin's career on screen I find fascinating because he had a couple of these like early performances where he's really acting and really exposing some vulnerability, especially for somebody like him who like made a joke of himself playing drunk Yeah, and he would also be drunk. And so for him to play like the real perils of alcoholism and the struggle to, to go straight – and let himself bear on screen like this, I, I think, is sort of amazing. And then, you know, as the 60s rolled on, he would do, like, Rat Pack movies and Matt Helm movies that are extraordinarily forgettable. 
so I'm thankful we got like a couple performances out of him like this, but it seems like tragic that he just sort of gave up on on, on this sort of performance. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's like Adam Sandler syndrome of like, I could just cash in and like, you know, uh, do the thing that people want me to do, or I could try. He was also um, responsible for some amazing entertainment with the Dean Martin roasts. Mm-hmm. I don't know if your grandparents have those on VHS <laughs> at their houses, but man, oh man, for the episodes I've seen are freaking hilarious. And yeah, he totally plays up that drunk persona on there as mm-hmm. well. And everybody makes fun of him for being a drunk because it's mm-hmm. that classic roast format where they just go around and rip everyone a new one and he's terrific on there he was like who's this ed mcmahon guy stealing my bit (laughs) i should have ordered those uh tapes possibly when i was a 12 year old watching Mm -hmm. the infomercials (laughs) right yeah they were everywhere for a while oh yeah Yeah, the my my dad's parents might have because they had a more of a that's that's the humor my other grandparents were like that is too vulgar and rude (laughs) they're right it's true yeah i've never heard either of them swear in my entire life either so like they are very squeaky clean catholics but uh yeah so uh wait joel you're done with your uh whole thing well i mean Honestly, you could probably kind of figure out the rest of it. I guess <laughs> yeah, the yeah. other details are there. There's a love interest for John Wayne, and mm-hmm. she's she might be a shady person. She might not be. I don't know, and, and it doesn't really matter. Um, and eventually, you know, showdown happens. People get shot. Horses get rode. Uh, it all takes place in the same one town, too. So it's kind of like a... Mm, What's what's a word I would really for? I mean, it's, it's just a small environment, you know. They got the different buildings that they occupy most of the time. They're spending time in the casino slash hotel thing, um, and they only go to the saloon when they want to arrest somebody. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, so, uh, it's it's really of sort of a, a toned down scope, um, especially compared to. Uh, Howard Hawks' previous Western with John Wayne, Red River, which is, you know, like a cattle drive epic. Um, and John Carpenter describes this as the ultimate Western, which I think like if you were to look at other movies that are the ultimate Western, like uh, like Good, the Mad, the Ugly, or The Wild Bunch, or, or Unforgiven, like they're so, you know, epic in scope, and, or, or Shane. Whereas this one is, yeah, it's on like a constructed town set, or in the studio, there's like three or four main locations and then the main drag and that's it. And so for this movie to have such like an imprint into like film lore as one of the primo westerns, I think, it just speaks to um, – well, to quote John Carpenter again, Howard Hawks always has his camera at the right place at the right time. And so it's just a testament to the efficiency of his filmmaking. Yeah, I guess we should – Mention the other like obvious thing besides High Noon is um, pr- uh, Salt on Precinct Thirteen, because mm-hmm. like basically that whole movie is like the last, uh, like the back half of this movie. It's just like John Carpenter was like, let's take the action part and just extend into a whole separate movie. Hmm. Where Which, I, this this movie was movie was sorely lacking the part with the ice cream truck. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I always saw Assault on Precinct 13 as being kind of a mix of Rio Bravo and Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. Just oh, yeah. the way those gang members just keep coming and coming and coming like the zombies, especially towards the end when they've got the door and the hallway and all that. It just feels very much like a zombie attack more than gang yeah. members. Just like Shivers we watch together. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Joel. I did I didn't realize that one of the credited writers, B.H. McCampbell, was actually Howard Hawks' wife. That uh, it was Barbara Hawks under an assumed name. Huh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, so to to uh, to start with the negative, uh, what doesn't work in this movie for uh, for any of you guys? Oh gosh, I can't think of anything that doesn't work yeah. in this movie. Um. Yeah, that's that's pretty much what I would say. Like I don't I don't exactly have sky high expectations of like realistic portrayal of what happened during that time period, like as opposed to the American interpretation of what must have been must have been like, you know, honorable men, bad guys who wear black hats, except for that sheriff guy wears a black hat, which almost gets him shot. Mm-hmm. Um you know, a man and a woman they figure it out. Mexican owns a business, not on my day. No, wait. <laughs> First they own the hotels, and then there's taco trucks on every corner for John T to hide behind. You know, Hillary Clinton could have made that happen, but no. I know. I was looking forward to those taco trucks. <laughs> I mean, I I could understand maybe somebody being intimidated by the running time, especially with the, the thin plot, but like this, I just love luxuriating in this movie. Mm-hmm. And I think it also gives these characters time to breathe and grow. I think one of the sort of indicative scenes of the way this movie works is after Angie Dickinson's character helps John Wayne um, take out some goons by distracting them. There's a short scene with her like getting the shakes and dealing with the the shock of seeing three or four men shot as partially a result of her. And she has to, like, take a, a couple shots of alcohol to calm herself down. And, and she is dealing with the psychological implications of, of being implicit in, you know, m- murder. Mm-hmm. And there, that is not something you see in a lot of Westerns. Even, like, gritty revisionist Westerns. They don't take the time to show you the human toll of, of taking somebody else's life. And I think a two-hour, 20-minute running time allows the filmmakers to to show that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I totally agree. Every single one of the characters that are of importance, like basically the good guys for the for the most part, they their characters like aren't just their what you would think on the surface kind of thing, like, I mean, D. D. Martin being my favorite character in the thing, uh, uh, in the movie, obviously, he's his character struggling with this idea of who he is and who he used to be and what he can be now, and the the John Wayne's character, who is the sheriff, he he seems kind of you know stubborn, which he is. He seems kind of bossy, which he is, but he's also got that softer side that just slowly gets revealed. And uh, you're, you're talking about Edgy uh, Dickinson's character, who we don't know anything about except that she seems shady, and he wants her out of the town. And she, like you said, she helps out, and she's 
kind of, she can see through John Wayne's hard exterior, see, see the man inside there. And I think Stumpy, Walter <laughs> Brennan, even he goes from just like a joke, old man joke, eh? to being like so honorable that oh, almost oh. almost makes your a tear come out of the eyeball. Luckily, I had my tear ducts removed, so it didn't happen, but it could have happened. John Wayne kisses another man in this movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he does. Yeah, this, this is one of the sweetest love letters to male friendship in cinema history. I love it. Yeah. Uh, I forgot to say this in the beginning of the episode. Uh, trans rights are human rights. I try to say it every episode, and sometimes I forget to say it at the start. But uh, uh, just remember that. If you disagree with that, why are you listening to uh, a mode of our theme podcast? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, like, I guess I like Mike. I didn't get into this earlier, but what's your history with westerns? Yeah, I luckily didn't grow up in a house that was filled with westerns. I think a lot of uh, kids suffer through their dads watching westerns. I was very fortunate; my dad watched a lot of Rocky and The Godfather movies, so I didn't have to sit through a lot of westerns. Uh, but that also means that I'm pretty blind when it comes to quite a few Westerns. And it's only been maybe over the last 30 years that I've really started to dive in. And mostly I've come to them through spaghetti Westerns. So I'm more familiar with those than typical American ones. But um, this one I've definitely seen. I've seen a few other Hawks Westerns. Um, I tend to, you know, when they have the list of like, these are the greatest Westerns. I tend to hit those quite a bit, um, and I have yet to dive into other uh, ones too much. I mean, I just finally saw Duel in the Sun recently, and that was only because it was on the big screen. Um, but yeah, um, my history is pretty spotty, I would say. I, I'm in no way an expert on Westerns. Okay. I have a similar thing. Like, my dad would watch Westerns sometimes. It, it, well, I should say, if Clint Eastwood was in it, my dad would watch it. And if Clint Eastwood wasn't in it, he didn't care. But uh, besides that, like, I kind of got to Westerns late. And it was kind of, I think it was High Noon and this were, like, ones that made me go, like, oh, these are actually cool. I wish I watched them when I was younger. Uh, right. but although, when I was younger, I feel like I probably wouldn't appreciate them uh, as much. And, like, my personal favorite, uh, type of western is what i call the grandpa western which is uh like john wayne stuff like this like i just get a kick out of it and i don't really know why exactly but like i prefer this over to spaghetti and all the other varieties you know i think there's uh, um <laughs> just to, to get back on the john wayne kick again i guess i think he his screen presence is just one of the most singular in film history. I think he has a command of his physicality that is unmatched by other, other performers. And like in sort of the yin to Buster Keaton's yang, like like the silent comedians are so, you know, they're, they're able to do these incredible acrobatics and, you know, facial expressions and pratfalls and stunts. Whereas John Wayne just knows how to fucking walk. Oh, and or like in the scene where he shoots the the guy on horseback, you know, from a distance with the rifle, like you just he immediately communicates, I know how to shoot this rifle. 
or I can do the spin move and knock this guy's lights out with, with this rifle. Uh, and there's just not another certainly Western star that has that c- command of his own own body. And I think, especially for somebody who's been on screen as long as he had, but by this point, like you know, he 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 just knew what he needed to do to communicate mm-hmm. with the camera. Yeah, like he's like he's an elegant bruiser. Like yeah. it's it's very yeah. it's just very like brute force, but also there's like he's fully aware of uh, of his body and what to do. Yeah. Like what you basically so, said, but uh, like you know, he's always well, not always, but in, in, in this movie, he's definitely in the strong, silent type mode. But when Angie Dickinson kisses him for the first time, he's it's clear like like the wind has been taken from him, and he goes from strong, silent type to silent because he's been struck dumb mm-hmm. by this gorgeous woman, and and he's able to play that shift without saying anything. And there's not many actors that can pull that off. But uh, well, J Dog, I'm not sure if we got uh, your opinion, but do, do you like John Wayne as an actor? Like, I really have no clue. Yeah, he's fine. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's I don't, it. Uh, I, <laughs> what about I, what about as a person? <laughs> uh, no, not, okay. not not especially. You know, that's it's fine. <laughs> hey, let's see. How many John Waynes? I, I, how many John Waynes? How many John Waynes have I said? That, that's what I call the the movies. Did you see that new John Wayne with Jim Caviezel? You know, like, I like what I have seen him in. He, he does fine John Wayne, right? And, like, every once in a while I've seen him in something like The Quiet Man where it's not quite so bravado, western. It's, it's a little bit different, but it still leans in that direction. Everything else I've seen, with the exception of Babyface, which he's in that movie for two three minutes at the most yeah yeah, yeah. uh it's all western stuff and doesn't doesn't really change up much of what he's doing mm-hmm. hmm. so yeah he's he's good at what he does and he does require i think like a lot of actors a director who knows what to do with them oh yeah so there he's made some bad movies for sure <laughs> but uh so it's been, it's been brought up earlier. I haven't seen many Howard Hawks movies, but like uh, Mike and uh, Arminio, I'm sure you two can uh, know like the, the Hawksian woman mm-hmm. um, uh, trope. I don't, I don't know. What, how, like, what is the Hawksian woman? Um, what, confident, not ashamed of herself, um, very smart, capable of sarcasm. Um, and if we're just taking both Lauren McCall and Angie Dickinson, um, thin and with a husky voice. <laughs> I can, I can agree with that. And I'm trying to remember, cause I'm, I also am familiar with, uh, Hatari, the, uh, leader Hawks work and Elsa Martinelli is very similar to what you just described as well. Mama Tembo. Mm. So you'd say that, uh. And gentlemen prefer blondes. Mm-hmm. That Jane Russell was more of a Hoxian woman than I almost said Marilyn Manson. I am going. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Mon- Marilyn Monroe. Yes. Uh, well, Russell definitely had the huskier voice of the two. Yes, that's true. But I think citing gen- gentlemen prefer blondes. I think that. Um, is an exemplar of Hawks' versatility as a filmmaker because he had to have and to have not um, General Prefer Blondes and, and Rio Bravo. 
And those are three pretty uh, disparate movies. And so he was just comfortable in any genre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although he didn't direct the musical sequences in um, yeah. uh, Gentleman. So he's not responsible for the, uh, the, the, the gem sequence with the muscle men. Well, I wonder who did the musical sequences in um, Ball of Fire, because there were a couple good ones in that. A lot of really good jazz musicians showed up in that one. Uh, mate, well, yeah. I saw for Gentleman, he was, he did not do like the, the musical sequences. He had someone else do it for him. At that point in his career, he could do whatever he wanted to. Yeah. All right. Uh, okay. So, uh, what uh, we kind of got to it earlier a bit, but what works for everyone in this movie? Like, what 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 are your favorite things about it? I think for me, it's that so many of our characters have arcs. That it's not just the John T. story. If anything, he's he's almost more of a catalyst, but he does change a little bit um, throughout the story. You know, definitely by falling in love with Angie Dickinson. But I think everybody has their arcs, and other than maybe Stumpy, but I mean, dude's got a fantastic arc. I love um, Ricky Nelson and the way that he enters the story. He might be a little unchanged by the end, but I think he's definitely has more friends at the end than he did at the beginning. Um, but yeah, I just I I like that it can handle all of these different characters, and you don't feel like you're really missing out on anybody. Everybody seems pretty well put together. Yeah, absolutely. And I I love, like I said earlier, uh, its depiction of male friendship. Um, as has been pointed out by a, a lot of critics, the the three uh, dude, Chant and Stumpy sort of form like a father mother son dynamic a little bit. And mm. with 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 three sort of crusty, grungy men, it, it's it makes that dynamic funnier, um, but also very endearing. And I, I I think it's the movie's depiction of alcoholism and addiction is very compelling because the dude is trying and trying and trying this whole movie, and he really backslides. It it shows how difficult it is to kick a lifelong habit. I mean, we don't get a realistic depiction actually, but yeah. you know, he, he gets pretty, but he starts pretty pathetic uh, by willing to dive into a spittoon for a coin. So we can oh, buy another yeah. drink, which is it's like, what a way to open a movie. Yeah. Here, here's your second lead <laughs> willing to put his hand in tobacco juice for, for booze. Um, and then just his struggle to to get clean and and the support John Wayne has for his friend. The fact that there's so many moments where it's clear John Wayne is going to support dude no matter what. He He's not openly affectionate with him, but he'll, for example, buy back his guns from from a pawn shop just in case dude is ready to come back and be his deputy and that that couldn't have been cheap for him um so so he's he's going you know beyond what a normal movie would would show a character in in supporting his friend through his troubles and this uh the thing i just kind of realized is wasn't frank sinatra and the man with the golden arm about the uh baseball player not baseball player mm-hmm. So like, heroin addict yeah yeah that was a few years later but but yeah that is one of the right. big 
uh, depictions of or early depictions of drug addiction in the mainstream oh, film. Hey, it's just kind of weird. I kind of realized like the two, like two of the Rat Pack members depicted like addiction, uh, like in the most graphic way like they, you know, they could for Hollywood at the time. Yeah. But uh, like for me, like one thing I like, oh, I need to say it before I forget. Like, I didn't realize, but uh, Gene Wilder's character in um, Blazing Saddles, that's the reference to Dean Martin in this, isn't it? I don't know if it's this one in particular or if it's just kind of Westerns more in general, but I could definitely see the similarities. Because there's a part where he's like, has his hands, and he's like, look at my hands, and I couldn't help think of the part in Blazing Saddles. Mm, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Has yeah. Like steady hand. <laughs> And he's flapping <laughs> to the other hand. <laughs> now show show me your shooting hand. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I mean, the uh, Blazing Saddle was full of references that I I like the Randolph Scott joke. I didn't yeah. get when I was a kid, but now oh, I, yeah. I, I saw like oh, okay, I I know who that is. I know what this joke even means now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so there's that. But um, I just like. It's a hangout movie where it's very slow, and you just get to know everyone very slowly. But it's a powder keg. Like, you know something's going to go down at some point. And you get these little bursts of violence every so often. And then you get, like, the like the big, the big action scene at the end that goes on for maybe 20 minutes. It goes on for kind of a while, because there's, like, it feels like maybe, like, hour 55 of just like set up and hanging out and then you get like oh here's the action here's what you wanted type of thing uh-huh. but uh yeah it's just like the but it, it fully works it i don't know, like it's like this movie, it just works on every level for me yeah it, it, even it is a little convenient that two hours earlier uh, we had a cattle rancher bring in a load of dynamite <laughs> that's yes. going to sit, sit there for our characters uh, to be able to use later. Chekhov's dynamite, <laughs> yeah. I thought all these towns had wagons full of dynamite. Yeah. That, that was part of it. It's like in a video game where every enemy just pops up next to an exploding barrel. <laughs> where do we put all these exploding barrels? Well, I want one there. I want one over here. Put them in one place. Oh, we'll think about that later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought of something else that I, that doesn't work for me. Okay, and this is just me personally. Okay, you know I don't like a music video sequence, and uh, <laughs> yeah, at the end when they you know everybody's got their shit together, it's the night before things are gonna go down. They decide Dean Martin get those pipes out, Ricky Nelson, YouTube, and I you know it would be stupid to have those actors on and not have them sing. That's so I'm not saying that it doesn't fit in the movie. And my personal taste is like. Maybe I should fast forward here. Maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe I don't need to hear these guys sitting around and singing. You're not the first person I've heard say that about this. Uh, I, I it's so my favorite moment <laughs> when they do when dude just starts belting it out, and then Colorado joins in, and then you even have Stumpy there on the harmonica. Oh, I really like it. And w- what I like about it in terms of of this movie in particular, because like it is a a trope of 1950s movies to sort of have a musical sequence in there mm-hmm. but in the previous scene is when the dude sort of like finally gets his shit together and is able to, to literally pour the booze back in the bottle but that is triggered by him hearing a song 
Yeah. So we're sort of, the groundwork for music is very important to these characters is laid. So when they start singing a song together, it it makes sense for these characters to bond through music. And so it's not as cloying and obvious as it could be in another film. Yeah, yeah that's true. I never even thought of that. Yeah, this movie's really layered. He has a like terrible I'm... singing voice, that's right. <laughs> Mind if I take a turn? Actually, sure, we're going to bed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good night. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, there's a moment in the beginning, the part where the one guy is running off and dude gets a shot and hits him in the leg. Yeah. And the, the blood goes into the, uh, lands in the uh, mug. And every time I see it, I like. I always think, is this a ref? Uh, is this referenced in Spider-Man? Oh my the, gosh! But- no, it's referenced in The Incredible okay. Hulk. But the, the part in Spider-Man where like Will Nafoe goes into their room and Peter Parker's on the ceiling and he has a cut. Right. Um. Yes. Mm-hmm. Let's just say yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I know there were, that Walter Hill was working on a remake of uh, John Woo's The Killer, and he had basically the exact same scene of following someone in and having them up in the rafters and the blood drop coming down. So yeah, screenwriters are definitely familiar with this one. Yeah. And this, uh, like the cinematography, like everything's, it's just so, yeah. Like uh, what John was saying, what John Carpenter said is like the camera is the right place at the right time. And just like the perfect amount of tension and just like the whole saloon, uh, that whole segment with like the guy who ran to the bar and, it's just, it's kind of, it's always shot at, at, at a distance. You always see the group. You see dude isolated. And then you get like the overhead shot where it's like, oh, he really is here. And mm-hmm. it's just so fucking good. But, uh, yeah, like, uh, uh, I don't know. That, that's it. That's, that's my, my, that's my thought. Um, oh, uh, with, uh, I haven't seen many Howard Hawks movies. I've only seen this and, um, uh, gentlemen for blondes, uh-huh. but like, what are like the Hawks tropes besides like the Hawksine woman? If if there even are like Hawks tropes, um, uh, I think stylistic efficiency, I, I think, is one. Um, I mean, he certainly doesn't have a visual style the way like a Hitchcock does. Um, but an- another is he just he really loved making movies about professionals. And so that's why he found High Noon so reprehensible is because this professional who's put in charge of the public safety has to go around for help. And so he, he liked making um, movies about people who are experts in their field, sort of like, you know, Michael Mann would, would, would do for, like, cr- criminals. Um, and, and that and I, I think his sort of um, – diversity in, in subject matter and, and genre. So from musical to Western to, to film noir is, is what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Tommy also, uh, uh, also kind of did that with, uh, cause his movies like, uh, uh, the, the Tom Popo, the funeral, all, uh, um, uh, a taxing woman, all the, all his movies are kind of about people who are good at their job and you see them do their job. And mm-hmm. specifically he loved Hollywood movies and, for Tom Popo, he cited westerns. I, I believe he did cite Howard Hawks as an influence, because like that movie is a, a western about a, a ramen uh, shop, kind of sort of. Howard Hawks also had a big problem 
in High Noon that uh, the guy's uh, wife saves him at one mm-hmm. point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, I mean, sure, the love interest here doesn't save the sheriff, but, I mean, she's she's a fighter. She's Oh, yeah. Got his back. I don't. I don't understand the huge difference. A uh, woman. No. Right. I think. I think that's a, a little b- a bit of a case of trying too hard to find fault with a movie, <laughs> and and also your own insecurities exposing you. Because he hawks with his sort of a preoccupation and almost obsession with the hawking woman. Like when he cast Lauren Bacall. He was just immediately head over heels for her and wanted her for himself. And then she, of course, fell in love with uh, Humphrey Bogart, and that made him incredibly in- insecure. And so to see a woman in charge in a movie, I, I think, if I can psychoanalyze him from 80 years in the future, um, sort of triggered his own insecurities about, about women. Um, mm-hmm. And so in a move in a movie he already didn't like i think that was something for him to point out um if that happened in a movie he wrote he wouldn't have any problem with it i think you're right yeah natural all right uh like uh what are your favorite like i mentioned my favorite moment like the whole saloon part in the beginning like what are your favorite like little moments and like uh scenes in this i mean there's a lot to pick from though so yeah, I mentioned the stuff with the underwear at the beginning. I think that's pretty good. Um, but I really, uh, I'm going to sound like a pervert, but mm-hmm. her in that very scanty garb trying to make him upset, I yeah. think is a really <laughs> great moment in the film. Yeah. I, yeah, I you know, trying not to get stumble over his words. Yeah. Also, yeah. not being able to hold himself together as well yeah. as he wanted. <laughs> yeah, John Wayne being turned into a gibbering idiot by Andy Dickinson <laughs> is wonderful. And I do love how she calls him John T for the rest of the movie. Yeah. When she invites him to spend the night in in her room for safety's sake. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's a rocking chair. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, so... Uh, the, the flirtations with Angie Dickinson, like I said before, um, when John Wayne kisses Walter Brennan on the forehead and then sort of like runs out before Walter Brennan can retaliate, I think that's <laughs> adorable. It is. And then in in the opening when John Wayne just sort of like does that spin move with the, with the rifle and, and <laughs> knocks the guy out. What about you, Joel? Do you have any favorite moments? Hmm. I do like the bar co- confrontation where – Dean Martin gets to go in through the front door for once and the, the oh, whole scene yeah. yeah, where it seems like he has made a mistake. You know, you get the whole coin toss directly into the speak tune again. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the way that plays out. But I, I also really enjoyed when, let's see, let's see, who is it? Is it like Dean Martin and the sheriff are captured or is it something else? But once again, like one of them begins a lie. And uh-huh. it almost seems like first John is not going to catch on, so he repeats it, and he's right. And he, he, I there's gotcha. no like wink, there's no nod. He just goes with it. Yeah, yeah. So, the whole thing of Stubby's all alone, alone down there at the jail. You better go down there. Mm-hmm. That's really good. <clears throat> yeah, it, it shows how c- close they are because they can communicate non-verbally like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read an article. Of, uh, it's I forgot what 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 paper or magazine it was. 
but it was someone just like their favorite movie. And they pointed something out that really like broke through like this kind of the casual coolness of the movie is that the main characters only call each other by their nicknames or by oh. their last names. Like it's very, it, it's, it's never proper. It's always, it's chance or dude or Colorado. And, and that just shows like a certain, like certain air of like everyone's comfortable with each other. Everyone kind of knows each other. And it just kind of like eases the, um, it just makes like the hangout nature even more like, uh, even stronger. Where it's just like they, they know each other. Like they, uh, like they can, like, you know, like, like in that one scene you mentioned, like they can, like when, when they is kind of, uh, communicate non-verbally it makes sense because like the whole time they're calling each other by nicknames and it's like well yeah they they, they, know, they know each other so it makes sense that they would be able to do this it's like a nice little find out stumpy's name <laughs> <laughs> don't dead name them yeah. <laughs> so it's like a nice little uh subtle thing that like uh, like really builds on what the movie is mm-hmm. right, but uh like besides this like uh, I also I wanted to look up who the cinematographer was because like I, like I don't understand how like every shot seemed perfect. It was in like a John Ford type of way where it's like like I know John Ford did that so that the studio won't edit uh his movies so like he could have his own way. But did did Hawks also do that? Like uh shoot like like kind of the minimum amount so that he could have his own version that he wanted. That's a really good question. I don't know if, if he ever had problems with the studio or not. Um, the the cinematographer for this is Russell Harlan, um, who also shot To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, Witness for the Prosecution, and The Thing. The, the Hawks is The Thing. Um, but he, um, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, Hawks is, was less efficient a shooter than, than John Ford. Um, so I, I think he, he had a reputation for going over schedule and over budget. So he didn't arrive at these shots by accident. I, I think he sort of had to, to feel it out and try it, but he, 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 he got this movie. Uh, so it was certainly worthwhile. Like, I don't really have much else to say besides like, I, this movie kind of rules. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I remember, um, cause I don't want to do an episode on high noon. Because we covered this, and like between the two, I like them kind of equally. But High Noon is like more of a serious movie. It's not as fun, but this is like the fun yeah. version. And so for, it's, for me, it's more of a mood thing of like which I feel like. But uh, uh, yeah. So like a, a kind of a round table. Like, do you guys like High Noon, or is it, or do you have a, a preference uh, to uh, a version of the story? I know, definitely have seen um, Rio Bravo far more many times than High Noon. Um, I don't know. High Noon was shown to me in college, and I think, I don't know, I think I hold, hold it as higher art necessarily than Rio Bravo, but I have more fun with Rio Bravo. It's not like I'm, I don't need High Noon all the time you know it is kind of ponderous and i like the editing style and all that i really like all the character actors that are in it but i have more fun with real bravo definitely yeah i would have to agree i, I do like high noon a lot um but but i prefer real bravo um i actually like high noon a little less since i 
saw The Gunfighter last year, uh, which is a Gregory Peck Western from the year before High Noon. Um, there's a lot of similar stakes, uh, similar pacing, even like similar moments where there's like a focus on clocks, like the, the way it is in High Noon. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly physically built lead character. So it's just like, oh, this is um, like High Noon, but with a more interesting protagonist. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> huh, so so if, you, if you like High Noon, I would say definitely uh, seek out The Gunfighter from 1950. Um and and because I don't really see a blueprint in any other Western to Rio Bravo, I, I got to give it to to Rio Bravo. Uh, although High Noon has Jack Elam, so mm. that's a big plus. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is the first time Jack Elam has organically come up in an episode, so I have to bring up. He was in a sitcom in the 70s called The Texas Wheelers where he played the dad of two teenage sons and the two sons are Mark Hamill and <laughs> um uh Jake no sorry Gary Busey. Wow. Wow. Oof. It that lasted, sounds like a good show. It lasted maybe I think seven episodes. Hmm. I've been looking for it for like probably at this point eight, nine years. Uh seemingly whoever owns it like kinda of destroyed it because it was probably garbage. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, if anyone listening knows where to find it, please well, let me like, know. There's at want... least two episodes out on YouTube right now. I must be recent because I kind of gave up a little while ago trying to find anything. Yeah. They were posted in 2019. Oh, okay. Yeah. I want to see all the episodes. I have, I have to see this show that probably sucks because Jack Elam in a sitcom is, it, it, it sounds like it, it shouldn't work. Like I have to see it, but uh, uh, Joe J Dog, mm. High Noon or uh, Rio Bravo or uh, what? What's your thoughts on the on the two? You know, I don't like this or the other one kind of con- comparisons here. I know, but like honestly, I'm not gonna watch either of those again. Like I, I'm not, I'm fine on westerns. They're they're like as opposed to you. I'm I'm more of a spaghetti western person. Mm. I'd, I'd rather watch the more boring Italian landscapes and stuff like that. It's Spain, not um, Italy. And <laughs> uh, shut up. Okay. <laughs> um, I was thinking of Antonioni. Anyways, um, how about this? Better male friendship: Lee Van Cleef and Clint Eastwood in for a few dollars more, or John Wayne and Dean Martin in Rio Bravo. Oh boy, that's tough. Hmm. I mean, better male friend. I, I, see, Rio Bravo feels like an actual friendship, and for a few dollars more, it feels more like a father son kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Um, but like either one, like if somebody's like, "Hey, we're gonna watch High Noon," and I'd watch High Noon, and we're gonna watch Rio Bravo, I'd watch Rio Bravo. But I the, another thing that drives me away from Rio Bravo mm-hmm. especially is I don't like the whole Americans were great attitude kind of thing. Yeah. Like this is this was what the law was like. It's like every once in a while I saw a, uh, a little bit of what the law was like when you know he was just punching people at, just because he could. He's the sheriff, what are you going to do? <laughs> but uh it's I I'm not very I'm not very big on, you know, the heroes of the US. Yeah, uh, unless they I, I, all talk like this. 
I, I get that, but at the same time, it's just like it's it's classic Hollywood. It's kind of what they did. Yeah, you can't change it. That that is one of the things that I find fascinating about westerns is that they're so often a reflection of how America feels about itself. Um, so you have movies like The Oxbow Incident, which really take mob mentality in America to task. Uh, like that movie takes no prisoners. Um, or um, a lesser-known Bud Bedecker Western-like Seminole where it takes place in Florida, so not strictly Western, but it's directed by Bud Bedecker, so. But where, like, the villains are the American military, like, out and out. They're, mm. except, except for the main character, they're all a bunch of murderous assholes. <laughs> um, and then you have a movie like this, or like, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, where America is... You know, de- depicted pretty gloriously, uh, and so I think you you can see the the sort of waxing and waning of how America feels about the philosophy of manifest destiny, um, how it feels about how it treated Native Americans, how it feels about itself, and so you know it. And I and I don't think it's all forties westerns like this, all fifties westerns like this, and then the revisionist westerns came in. I think it's a lot more nuance nuance in that, and I think. Westerns as a genre are, are just a fascinating way to, to look at how film reflects American culture. Yeah, I mean, we, we so far this season we covered Johnny Guitar, mm-hmm. yeah. which, uh, wait, Joel, did you like that one? The Johnny Guitar? Um, I, I liked it, but like I said, it shouldn't be called Johnny Guitar. Well, no, you can't call a movie Vienna. That wouldn't work. <laughs> no one would see it. Yeah, I guess so. And also, I think it's also a misfire to be like, actually, Joan Crawford is a star, not uh, this giant Viking of a man. <laughs> and we covered the the Fast Finger Western, uh, Whitey, which is... Perfect. No it, notes. It, yep. It sure is a, <laughs> a movie that exists that Fast Finger made. Uh, don't watch it. Well, I don't know. Watch it once. I don't like the movie at all. <laughs> Track it down if you if you're curious to see Fast uh, RWF Fastbender do a Western in German about um, about race in America. It's uh, yeah, it, it's it's not uh, yeah, right. You know what? Let's watch it. There's no way to really d- d- uh, get someone ready for whatever that movie is. <laughs> but uh, okay, so okay, okay, yeah, I'm pretty much done. This uh, Rio Bravo rules. It's Hell just yeah, like, yeah. Uh, I like. John Wayne movies, I like this. I just love their shit. And this kind of was a love fest because, like, I don't, I just, I don't have anything negative to that negative to critique or really get into. It's not like the Whitey episode where it's like I have a lot to say about the weird racial politics that Fastbender is trying to do that he doesn't clear, like, clearly does not understand. But. Uh, <laughs> It's yeah. like that one, that gag from The Simpsons where Bart makes a cake with At Least You Tried <laughs> written on it. Like, just give that to Fastbender. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> also, he was like uh, fucking the star at the time because he was oh, yeah. in lust with him pretty much. Uh, anyway, yeah, the yeah, Rio Bravo is available. And uh, I don't know, watch Howard Hawks movies. He's a, a good guest director. Hell yeah. And, uh,. Since I've only seen two, um, uh, Mike and uh, Armenio, what, what are the other like 
like top tier like essential Howard Hawks movies to to seek out? Um, definitely the thirty two Scarface. I would say if you yeah. haven't seen that, um, I did really like Ball of Fire quite a bit. Uh, His Girl Friday is amazing. Uh, the Big Sleep. Um, I do have a soft spot for Hatari, but it is pretty damn goofy. Uh, and uh, yeah, th- those are my tops. I think. Yeah, I would definitely have to agree. Probably, um, you know, the big sleep is just out and out one of my favorite film noirs. Um, and I think if you're a big um, Star Wars head, uh, watch Only Angels Have Wings. Well, I mean, oh. there, there's a lot of reasons to watch that, but I think the way they shoot aircraft flying in that movie definitely influenced the way George Lucas shot a lot of the the, the fighter sequences in. Um, in Star Wars. Oh, it came up earlier, but Lee Brackett. So, did she do like an early draft of Empire, or was it like what, what's the history on yeah, that? Yeah, so Lucas came up with the basic ideas, and then I think he hired Brackett. Sorry, it's been a while since I've read the. There are a couple of really good books about the making of these. He hired Brackett, but she was really sick. So I think she did do a draft before he ended up calling in Larry Kasdan to do uh, the rest of it. So I think she's got a little bit of her DNA in there, but probably not a ton, unfortunately. Oh, okay. Because I thought she died. At least that's my understanding. I thought she died in the late 70s. So it would have been early in production. Yeah. Exactly. Did we mention his score Friday as an essential one? I definitely, yeah, yeah I called okay, that okay, one okay. out. The, so, sorry. That's like the example of his dialogue and yeah. the dialogue speed. It's so great. That's not the leopard one. That's a different one. That's uh, bringing up baby. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So his girl Friday. His girl Friday. Is that Ben Hecht? I can't remember, but it's, it's almost like the front page, but, uh, a, a, a much more of a comedy. Yeah, that has been hecked, yeah. Okay. Part of this season was uh, forcing myself to watch more classic Hollywood, and uh, it's becoming an easier pill to swallow the more I am forced to talk about classic Hollywood. or oh, force yeah. myself to talk about it. That's that's one you're really going to want to check out. It's really freaking hilarious. I mean, the, the straight man, Ralph Bellamy, in that mm-hmm. movie, he just really gets me going. Yeah. Um, He's amazing. Okay, so uh, now on to recommendations. This is 1959. Um, Joel, do you want to go first with yours, or do you want to wait so you can pick yours out? No, 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 I'll go first. Okay. Okay, so it turns out that I did actually watch a 1959 movie not too Mm -hmm. long ago. And uh, this should be shocking to anybody who's been listening to the podcast usually. I'm completely out of things. I don't really watch the older, as many older movies as I'd like. Um, I just, yeah, it's one of those things. You'd understand if you were me, which nobody is. I watched a movie called The Best of Everything, uh, directed by Gene Negolesco. And it is a movie about three different women. <clears throat> Although it feels like, uh, you know, one of, one of the women is really the main character, and that's uh, Hope Lang. And they all live in the city. Um, they're at this job at a publishing company. Most of them work as typists, and including Hope Lang starts off as a typist, but she has ambitions to become an editor. And they publish these cheap romance novels, basically. 
Um, her, the editor who is in charge of her is actually played by, uh, what's her name? You know what I'm talking about? That person? Oh yeah. What's her name? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I really liked her in that thing she did. Why isn't her name like one of the first names? Joan Crawford, for God's sake. She's one of the most famous people in the movie. <laughs> Anyways, played by Joan Crawford, who doesn't, you know, plays off, oh, I don't like you. You're so ambitious. I don't like ambitious people. Like, you're not going to be able to get to where I am, blah, 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 stuff like that. And it deals with situations of sex, uh, uh, which sexual harassment. It deals with... Uh, women in the terrible situations that women end up in because of men. And it's, I don't know. Like I'd never heard of it before. It was very good in my opinion. Um, It's more, more drama than comedy, but it is funny also. And it just seemed ahead of its time. Although once again, I'm not that familiar with movies around this time period, but 1959, it, it felt incredibly feminist. So that's not very much information to go on, but I, I'd say watch it. Just watch it blind or watch a trailer for it if you want to. It doesn't matter. But yeah, I recommend it. And that's all that matters. And how often do I recommend things? Oh, yeah, every episode. Because you make me, Spencer. You can skip this part if you feel like it next time. Yeah, that's good. Watch it. That's it for you? That's all I'm going to do. You're skipping General Della Rivera? We did a podcast episode about it. Okay, well, there's a really great movie from this year called General Della Rivera by Roberto Rossellini. Hmm. It's kind of kind of a, uh, I think, apology film, given his connections to the fascist party in Italy. He did a couple of those. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a little complicated with his history with fascism. Let's, yeah. let's leave it at that. <laughs> Good director, but yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, um, I got two quick ones. Not two quick ones. I have a couple. One is the first Russ Meyer movie, The Immoral Mr. T's. Ooh, nice. Uh, I'm a big Russ Meyer guy. His early ones, I'm not as crazy about, but uh, I, I love Russ. He's a, a goddamn great cinematographer. He knows where to put a camera because he, he was a photographer before he was uh, made made films. He I think he was a war photographer in World War II, if I remember correctly. But... Uh, yeah, this is his first movie, and this kind of led the way to um, stuff like Beyond Valley of Dolls, Faster Push Cat Kill Kill, uh, Super Vixen, uh, my favorite one. Uh, yeah, there's that. Um, the Mummy, the Hammer production, the one Christopher Lee as the Mummy, and thus the and like the Mummy is, you know the story already, but it's Christopher Lee is the Mummy, and he has a, a great performance and it's all in just his eyes and ha- and just like he emotes everything from looks and it's incredible and there's also a lot of brown face where people of white people playing egyptians and flashbacks which is typical because yeah yeah whatever you know to expect it but uh the mummy stuff is really cool he's basically like jason ford he's uh more or less he's just like this uh, entity of like violence that that will just like find his way to his target by any means necessary, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a really good horror movie. And um, last one is it came out the year before, but every time I can bring up an African novel, I will. It's Things Falls Apart. Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achebe. It's a 
classic novel for a reason. And, uh, yeah, I th- yeah just read, read, uh, Chino, Chino, uh, books, read things fall apart. And just, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a, if you don't know what it is, you can look it up or you probably read it in college or something, but yeah, that's it for me. Oh, is it my turn? I guess. Mike uh, or John, whoever. Okay. Um, yeah. So uh, one that I just saw this year uh, from Robert Wise, "Odds Against Tomorrow," uh, which is sort of regarded as uh, Harry Belafonte's best screen performance, and it's him, Robert Ryan, and Ed Bagley <laughs> uh, plot a doomed heist. Uh, but it's also about how racism is tearing apart America. Um, it's not subtle with that message, but for a movie made in 1959, it's actually kind of refreshing. And there's a couple of moments where Harry Belafonte is performing live that's very compelling because he's losing it as he's performing. Uh, so definitely worth seeing for that. And then a movie I've loved for a long time, um, Roger Corman's Bucket of Blood. <coughs> Uh, starring Dick Miller, um, one of the best, uh, certainly probably the, the funniest movie Roger Corman ever directed. It's 66 minutes. It's great. It's about a, an artist who um, is pretty like pathetic and wants to be part of the cool crowd. And so ends up um, at first accidentally <laughs> killing people and using their bodies as uh, a way to sculpt and and be part of like the inner circle of the the sort of avant-garde artistic community um i think roger corman is a really underrated director because this um this movie then through the 60s he had a lot of really great movies behind the camera um including all the vincent price poe films so check out a bucket of blood it's a lot of fun yeah, it was tough to narrow down my picks to just a couple um, because there are two movies from 59 that I watch pretty much as often as I can. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock's North by Northwest and uh, Pillow Talk with Doris Day and Rock Hudson. I love both of those movies for very different reasons, but they are always favorites. And uh, I hope that everybody listening has seen both of those because uh it's their their tops is that it for you yes okay yeah uh we will do at least one hitchcock episode but uh, uh the guest i asked uh, about it she has not said picked out the movies yet so hmm uh, I'll, I'll let you, uh, you seem like a Hitchcock guy, so I'll, I'll let you know what movies are picked when she lets you know what, what which ones. Just because I look like Hitchcock doesn't mean I'm a <laughs> Hitchcock guy. I listen to your podcast. You've done a couple. We have. Good, we have. good evening. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, okay, so uh, that's it. Um, I write for Grumpire. I just wrote an article about... I had, well, I've had two published uh, recently. One on The Watermelon Man, the classic film, uh, and Con Comes to Harlem. 
because those came out on the same day and they started the same person. And then I wrote one on uh, Stormy Weather and how it's secretly a punk movie. And I have some other stuff down the pipeline that I'm slowly trying to work on. And hint, I'm writing about the baby because if you know me at all, you know that I love that movie and it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Oh, it's so messed up. I love it. Yeah, so I'm going to write about that compared to Psycho and other stuff. Nice. At least try to. Yeah, that, and uh, I, I've been on podcasts like The Projection Booth. Uh, I talked about African films there uh, two right. years ago. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it could be that long ago, right? Yeah. And uh, I don't have any podcast stuff coming out. Um, no, I, I think I'm going to... No, I was just on um, Movies from Hell talking about some action movies with Jared Gilman and um, uh, uh, Catherine Coldiron. Yes, <laughs> I, I remember. I remember Catherine's like it can't be Coldiron. That's that. That sounds like a fake name. It's too <laughs> too cool to be real, but it is. It, yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's so metal. It's like no, that's a fake name. Come on now. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, and uh, that's a. Uh, that that was an episode. It's movies from hell. You know what to expect if you if you heard an episode before. <laughs> we go off the rails for quite a while, and uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, J Dog, you got you got stuff. Yeah, you can come see me at the local toilet, swimming around because I'm a toilet monster who is made out of doo doo. No, I don't have anything to do. You know, you, uh, to, I don't want to sound like a simp, but you tell me what to do and I do it. <laughs> okay, well, I, I mean, you might have a something coming up. I don't know. I don't know your life. Yes, Pastor. What? <clears throat> okay, well, uh, Arminio, what you, what you got? <laughs> um, I have the uh, Popcorn Eschaton podcast with scott thorough you can find that on the zebras in america podcast feed we talk about movies from a spiritual and or leftist perspective um the next one that's gonna go up um it'll be either this week or next week will be a double feature of silence and black narcissus cool um yeah this has been a really great uh way to get into these topics with scott you know approach them in sort of a um non-hysterical manner um (laughs) so that's been uh really rewarding and uh, i have um a couple things with the pink smoke uh most recently this enormous uh spy movie um survey that i did with bill scurry and john cribs that was great and there's going to be um a living daylight commentary that i did with john cribs that was a lot of fun so so, uh, a lot of stuff going on with people hearing my voice yeah, I'm sorry. The, the spy ones are great. I think oh. it's like six hours in total, seven hours in total. Um, the first episode was just <laughs> under four hours. The second episode was three hours, 15 minutes. Yeah, it's it's a lot, but it's yeah. entertaining. <laughs> you get a long road trip. You can hear us talk about spy <laughs> movies. All right. And uh, Mike, you're a busy guy. You're uh, always putting out episodes and talking to people yeah yeah that's kind of my thing uh yeah you can find what i do over at weirdingwaymedia.com that's where i've got all my shows the projection booth where i talk about movies 
uh, The Shabby Detective, where I talk about Columbo, Rankin on Bass, where we talk about Rankin and Bass nightmares from the past. Um, that one's on its last season, thank goodness. Um, but yeah, a lot of stuff keeping me busy. And uh, you're going to return for Matador. I look forward to it. Yeah, and you can claim other uh, amount of art. There are a couple that no one's have, no one have taken so far. Okay. And um, Armenio, you're going to be back for something in the future. I can't remember what. Sure. For something. I hope so. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's it. Joel turned this thing off, and uh, <laughs> yeah, we're pretty much done. music is by James Fell. Our logo is by Andrew Bargeron. You can find him as Jemetsko on Threadless, TeePublic, Redbubble, Shirt Woot Catalog, and T-Theory. That is spelled G-I-M-E-T-Z-C-O. You can find our show in previous seasons on Podbean, Spotify, Google Play, and other places where you can find podcasts.